0: but in the book of Ecclesiastes, as we look at it, it it seemingly talks in the first verses of verse 8 through 20, it talks about that we are, the Christian is, to be an advocate for the oppressed. To be an advocate for the oppressed means that, that you and I are to fight on the behalf of those in need. To be an advocate for something means that we are to to be ones who champion the cause and look to those that are oppressed. Now, this also means for us, as many people like to say, well, there's, there's a sense that we, we are just amassing wealth. We're just holding on to wealth. We're just holding on to those things. And we look at wealth as something we need to just keep collecting, keep collecting, keep collecting. But, but what happens when we don't realize or don't take action or don't see those around us and take action on behalf of them. I think there's a great injustice that's done. For you and I who, as we are to be advocates for the oppressed, I think one of the most grievous things that we can do is to see a need or see something and not take action on behalf of that. Not take action on behalf of the need, the measure of justice and mercy that we are given, that's, that we have. And, and so it says, I, I'm sure you've heard again and again It's said within not just religious circles, but they say money is the root of all evil. I'll tell you this, this is a, that is a, a misstated kind of way of looking at this. The love of money is the root of all evil. And you know uh, we we have to have money to pay for bills, right? We have to have money to pay for things. It's something like we can't can 't just say, "Oh we can 't pay this this month. Are you going to be okay with that?" and just smile you know we we have things that we have that we have to pay for, and there are things that we have, and not all things are bad in that sense. But what we are to do is to understand that the wealth which we have, the things which we have have been paid for with a price. And seemingly, how we live matters. So if we see someone that's in great need, we are to take action on behalf of them. So we are to be an advocate, one who steps up for people and one who steps up in that same way. Secondly, we are to understand the evil that can happen and the harm that can happen when we hold on or just amass all the things which are the wealth that we seek or the wealth that we have. It doesn't take long for you and I to flip channels on the television or or if you're not a television folk, you know, flip the radio dial and go to that station to see and hear what's going on in our economic status of the world today, to see the corruption that's abounding, to see what's going on around us, Even during our time, if you were to look at some of the other channels, they even have or have had in the previous years a channel that had a show on hoarding. Anybody ever see that show? And you say, how can somebody do that? We can amass so many things, but we are to remember that we have to look out to others' needs before our own. We have to help others. We have to exhibit those things in our lives that that share to the world that we don't love anything more than we love Christ. We can't put anything in, in such a manner that it misrepresents the faith that we believe in. We can't put any message out there in this world that says we are more interested in money and interested in all of the wealth the world can bring rather than being interested in the cause of Christ. There's a great, there's a great understanding that you and I have to understand These people during this time, as they were speaking about Ecclesiastes, they had no inheritance for their children. And you you say, well, what did they gain out of all of this? What did they gain by the actions of just amassing such wealth or not using it or appropriating it or doing for others as they should? What was their gain? Certainly they had... I had a Publisher's Clearinghouse back then that showed up on their porch with this big check and say, look what you've won. Now you have $20 installments for the next 800 years. You know, I don't think that's really what happened during that time. Some of y'all don't know what Publisher's Clearinghouse is, and we'll we'll talk about this later. But during during my time, there was Ed McMahon. He would come to the door, and, and he would talk about what you've won. Now, Ed McMahon used to be on Johnny Carson. There you go. Who don't know who Johnny Carson is? It's okay. Late night talk show, Johnny Carson. And he was a big deal back then. So uh, anyway, we'll we'll just leave that where it is. But their gain, what did they gain out of all this? We like to think, well, the risk is worth the gain, right? The gain, what what did they get out of this? Their gain was they ate ate in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. How many of you want to sign up for that? Anybody want to sign up for that? Anybody say, I want to have everything and just hold it and, and gain it and attain it and keep it and just amass this wealth and not help anybody else. And guess what good stuff is going on in my life now? I am eating in darkness. <laughs> I'm frustrated. I am afflicted. And I'm angry. That sounds great, doesn't it? Sounds like something we want to sign up for, right? I'm going to hold on to all of this. I'm going to be selfish, self-centered and hold it all in. And guess What? These are the good things that are happening to me. Nobody's saying that. The passage is kind of reiterating the fact that what we have has been given or appropriated by God. And given to us as we look at it in the bigger picture. How can the love of money destroy people? There's there's a great argument out there for people who say, well, I have all the money I could ever want, yet I am still dissatisfied. I have all the amount of things and, and, and new items that I could ever amass and buy, yet I could not take it with me when I die. There are many that, y'all, y'all see this, they, they, they show the death of someone who really held to these things, meaning they, they really amassed wealth whether, whether through whatever means, but they, they, they thought they could take it with them. So there are people that were buried in their car. There are people that have been buried with all of their money so that their kids didn't get it. (laughs) There have been people that have been buried with all of these things. and, and, And it's like they think that when it goes to the grave, somehow that's like a transaction system. That when the person wakes up before God, I've got this money. It matters not. Because when you get into the gates of heaven and when you're there for God, you're there for God. You're there to worship God the remainder of your life. That is your reward. Your reward is not the amount of money you have in your account right now. The reward that you have is knowing without a shadow of a doubt that God resides in your heart and he is yours and you are his. And that wealth is not something that you can appropriate by gathering items of this world, something that you can gather by amassing this wealth and holding on to it. You are not just going to hold on to this. This is a measure to which we have been given the means to help others and to see others lot and help them in what they are going through. Thirdly, you see this, not only is it we are to be an advocate for the oppressed, not only is it a grievous evil, it can cause harm, but thirdly, it is good and appropriate when it's a person's lot. Now, what do you mean? You go from saying, Pastor, that that this is not a good thing. But it's not a good thing to amass all this money. But when you understand the use of what God has given you, you understand what God has blessed you with beyond measure. You understand to the measure to which God has bestowed on you your lot, as Scripture calls it. <coughs> your lot, meaning what He has given with you, and being content with what you have. Yeah, we we find ourselves more than just what wealth. The world sees God has given you an eternal salvation and hope that this world can never give you. See, I, I, I do believe we live in a time where we're, we're, we're so technologically advanced. We're so advanced in the medical field. We're so advanced in certain areas that we think, man, you know, if we just do more research, if we just gain more wealth, if we just invent the next big thing, then, then certainly we will eradicate all of these things that are going on around us and corruption and morals and values and everything else just kind of is eroding at the sides. We are missing the big picture. We're missing what God is doing. We're missing the fact that life is impossible apart from the divine God who created you and me. And and, and we have a great story to tell as Christians, don't we? We have a story to tell that says we are 100% imperfect. We are going to make a mistake and we're going to make it over and over Is not just monetarily, this is spiritually. What we've been given is greater than any amount of wealth that we could ever have. So I've often had this argument with somebody. They say, well, well, well don't, don't don't you like money? I said, well, yeah, money, money helps things go. But if I don't have a full bank account, what does that mean? Does that mean God is any less God? mm Does it mean that if I can't live extravagantly that God is any less God and He loves me any less? No, it doesn't mean that at all. My Bible finally tells me this. It tells me that He loves me. It doesn't say He loves me if. It doesn't say He loves me dot, dot, dot as it it says a lot of times when you're reading text messages and you know somebody's about to say something else. There's no box coming up. It says, I love you. And I want you to love nothing but me. And I want you to love the world just like I loved you. And I want you to live in a manner where you're happy with what I've given you. And you're happy and content with the things which I have blessed you with. And see, for you and I, we think about helping others. We think about helping others in need. How many of us, if we were to retrospectively look at our lives, could say that we have been helped in our great time of need? That at one point in our lives, we've been helped. Spiritually, we were in moral decay. Meaning that our debt was death. Our debt was no future. Our debt was not anything that we could ever work towards or effectively gain. But because of a loving Father in heaven who saw us, not as we were, but as he created us to be. He gave his life for us and paid the cost for you and I that we might have freedom in Him. So my reward, my reward is in heaven. But how I live for Him here matters in how He's able to use me and you to reach the world around us. And if we are putting our hearts and minds on anything but God, we are leading this world in the wrong direction. And it starts with our heart. Because what happens in our heart spills out into our lives, doesn't it? What happens in our hearts and minds and what we value, it spills out. So if we are not about helping our brothers and sisters or not about helping the people of this world or not about doing for others because Christ has done for us and they're not showing them that that just because they don't have the biggest and best or have all of these things does not mean that God loves them any less. It's not about us that it changes. It's about what God and who He is that changes everything. So, so a person's lot means that we understand that all things are given from God. And we need to be happy with what God's given us. We need to be excited about what God's doing in our lives. And we often think about our lot and what we've been given. And we automatically go towards money. Don't we? But it's not about money. It's about being happy with how God has loved us and how we are to love others. How God has, has given us hope beyond measure. How God has taken our debt, our sin, and wiped it away in our lives. There's, there's something greater to be said of a person's life being well-lived than just the money in their account. It's the, it's the love of God in their lives. The legacy that many, many are talking about when they leave this world, that legacy can be very much of this person was a good father, this person was a good mother, but the greatest thing I think can be said of you and I when looking at, at someone laying in a casket much right here is they did well for the Lord. They understood their lot. They understood that their lives were imperfect. They understood that they didn't have everything they wanted, but they had everything that God intended for them to have. And they did the very best with what means they had. There's, a, there's an understanding and a fight before the world as we see. And, and point number four here as I'm coming to y'all y'all go to sleep just like I do don't you? you most of you close your eyes unless there's a few of you that sleep with one eye open I understand that I've been married for long enough one eye open I understand that but uh, some of y'all are just getting that did will roll around Y'all go to sleep just like I do, don't you? you? Most of you close your eyes unless there's a few of you that sleep with one eye open. I understand that. I've been married for long enough. One eye open. I understand that. But uh, some of y'all are just getting that. It'll roll around in just a minute. But, but we all do the same thing. We all go to bed at night to rest in the Lord. And we rest physically, but as we rest, I believe God does something extraordinary in our lives. But we each have to ask ourselves an an internal question of being acceptable before God. And when it really comes down to it, if we are to draw comparisons with this world or draw any kind of this or that with the world, we have to ask ourselves, do I resemble culture or resemble the God of my faith? Do I resemble the people around me? Do they think I'm better than sliced bread or do... Do I believe that God has something greater than what they think about me? Do I live a life that's worthy of the gospel? Do others know of my faith because I've told them, lived them, and and, and, and explained that to them? Do people know what I believe in or do they think I'm just like them? You know, I am just like everybody else in the sense of I'm human. I have shortcomings. I falter. I make bad decisions and I do all of that. But I am different also. I know Christ, and God has a purpose. And what I do not want to do is to ever compromise my faith for anything around me. I don't want to have that in my life. So, so there's an impasse that we find ourselves in that sense. We, we have a fight between culture and being biblically acceptable before God. And there's, there's far too many people that live in a gray area. That's a nice modern political term, right? We live in a gray area. There's either good or bad. We try to live in a gray area where we don't offend anyone else. The Bible talks about this being lukewarm. Being lukewarm, what does that mean? Being lukewarm means that you're neither hot nor cold, meaning you haven't chosen to step towards Christ or step away from this world. You're trying to operate with two different belief systems, two different masters, and you know you're going to serve one more than you're going to serve the other. So being lukewarm, you can't be lukewarm. You can't just hang on the fence. You can't sit there and say, well, this day I'm going to be this way and this day I'm going to be that way. This situation I'm going to live this way. This is not what we are to be. We are not to seemingly have ourselves in two different areas and be lukewarm. We are to live for God for the very, uh, the very purposes of helping others understand the meaning for life. The meaning for life is that God intended for us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And there's so many that that seek after inadequate means to finding that meaning in life. We live in a world where there are so many belief systems that are out there, so many different thought patterns, intelligent beings, and everything else to try to gather people's thoughts and minds and and, and say, well, there's so many more ways than, than just Christ to know purpose in life, to be enlightened. The greatest thing I can tell you about any other endeavor such as that is that they are woefully incompetent when compared to an incomparable God. When you find each and everything in this world and you hold it to a a level of validity and a level of standards, you begin to see it crumbles in the sense of Of what it really provides. And what it really is. At the core of what it is. But when you look at the biblical world. And you begin to see who God is. You begin to find out that there's strength and power and might in the name of God. And I have found that so many people that try to disprove actually end up proving that God is who He says He is. Actually end up proving that, that He is the only way to truly inherit eternal life. Actually end up proving the fact that you are not on a journey and there's not multiple ways up this mountain. And the fact of it is, is that the mountain of God, Jesus came down that mountain to where we were. So if you think, well, there's multiple ways He came down to tell you, look, there's but one way, and I am that way. He didn't come down to say, well, take this path, (laughs) or take this path, as if he's, you know, some kind of, you know, directional gadget or something. He came to say, look, I am the way. There's no way to get to heaven except through me. And if you search this world time and again and travel it all the ways over and try different religions and different ways of enlightenment and different uh, belief systems and different customs and things like that, you might find yourself temporarily happy in that sense of, wow, this world is great and everything is great. But happiness in this world does not mean eternal life in the next. And we can amass everything we want to and miss the purpose God has for us here. But pursuing things in this world and pursuing the means of this world will cause anxiety, but will also lead to death, as it says. But we are to have joy in God's gifts and what God has given us. We can, we can drink deep in the understanding that God has a purpose for us. And it's not just to, to live in this world. It's to live in this world abundantly. See, you and I live in this world until he's ready to call us home. And the grand question which which Scripture brings to me is what did you do with the life I gave you? Did you live according to me and my word? Did you make a difference in this world? Or did you allow for the world to make a difference in you? Too far many of us are just like the world around us. And we're not meant to be. And I I don't care if people look at us and say, well, there's something a little strange and different about him. Because I want people to say that. I want people to say that about all of us. There's something different. I can't put my finger on it. But I want to know why they live differently than I do. Why they don't go and do and, and, and get their families to be engaged and involved in all the stuff I do and I don't get it. I want to know. I want to know why they go and help people spiritually, physically, emotionally, when, when they are at a place in their life to where they probably just need to focus on themselves. And I found that when I serve others, I don't have time to worry about myself, do I? When I'm giving for others and see them, and the joy and the delight in their knowing of who Christ is, I, I think that's a pretty good feeling in my life because I know that God used me for His will in my life. Y'all, we live in a world that needs to seek and see God. And if we look in a passage such as Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 20, we begin to see that there's different things around us that that can keep us from that if we focus on it. We need to remember that God has given us all that we ever need. And being content with that, of what God's given us, helps us to be ones who pursue after the God of our faith and not be lukewarm like this world around us is. Join me in prayer this morning. Dear Father, Well, this morning we've been in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. If you want to go back and look at that, that passage is on the Christian and the love of money from Ecclesiastes 5:8 through 20. Now coming up you'll hear from myself on Philippians 2:12 through 18. This evening we will be in the book of Philippians. If you've got your copy of God's Word, turn to the book of Philippians. We'll be Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. If you don't have a copy of God's Word tonight, in your pews you have copies that are there uh, that, that you're welcome to use and welcome to look through. The New Testament book of Philippians uh, teaches us about many different life lessons. And, and part of that life lesson is how to live in a godless world. How to live and be obedient to God in that godless world. And so we, we as Christian believers have a measure of responsibility first and foremost to God. But we have a measure of responsibility in our level of obedience to God. And our level of obedience in Him. And so if you will look in chapter 2, we will will start in verse 12 as it explains the responsibility, a Christian's responsibility for obedience. Let's look at verse 12 of chapter 2. If you'll turn there with me. In verse 12 it says this. Therefore, my dear friends, as you always have obeyed, not only my presence, but how much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling, continue to work out your salvation. To me, that's indicative of a process. That's indicative of something that's never completed and done. You and I, we become Christians, and that's not a one and done, I'm good, that's it kind of thing. It's meant to be a process of working that out in our lives. It's often said like this, many people say they didn't, they didn't become addicted to something overnight. They didn't become habitually enslaved to something overnight. They didn't become something of practice overnight. It's something that transpired over and over again in their lives, it's something that manifested itself after such a period of time. It's something that that was ingrained in their lives. Seemingly and likewise here, It calls you and I to be obedient, not in just his presence, but also in his absence. But also you start thinking about this, the author's writing here, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, with fear and trembling. What does that mean? That we don't take lightly the call of Christ in our lives. It can become very easy to do this church thing, can't it? To come and be a part of a church and say, I've done my church for this week. I'm good. It can be easy just to come and just to to sit and absorb and just feel like you're part of the <laughs> the ambiance of the church. <laughs> like almost as if you absorb by just being here. You know, you can go through the motions and fool a lot of a lot of people around. But the real you, God knows. And the real heart of man, God sees, right? So if God sees us and God knows us, then we might can fool our neighbors sitting to the right or left of us, but we'll not fool God. And God calls for us to be obedient, to continue to work on our faith and our, our understanding toward him. It also kind of means exerting oneself toward obedience and leading others Toward spiritual maturity. I believe as we have a, a calling in our own lives to be obedient and to, to do that, we have very much a calling in our lives to lead others too, to become more spiritually mature. If I were to tell you that I had I had the answer for something that you've been striving toward in your life, and I had a means to help you achieve what you were looking as an end result. You say, well, tell me about that. You say, lead me in that way. If you know how, let me know how. If you have been there, let me know how it goes. If you can help me get there. Yet I say, you know what? In my heart and mind, I know those things, but I'm not going to share them with you. I'm not going to let you know those things. I know them. And that's good. It doesn't help anybody else if I know those things. It doesn't help anybody else if I see them struggling. It doesn't help anybody else, and it certainly doesn't grow me or anyone else towards spiritual maturity if I'm worried about me. And so looking at this, it really has us to look at ourselves in light of Christ The calling of the Christian believer to think about how we might live in a godless world. And you think that in your estimation, if you were to to gauge on some sort of scale, would you say that the godless world that we live in is worse today or it was just as terrible then in the biblical world? I think in a world that's godless, it doesn't matter what age or time it is. I think when people are intentionally uh, against god 's word or live in such a manner as if there are no rights and wrongs and morals and values if if someone is to live in such a manner as if they don 't have to as if the Bible is full of great suggestions not commandments amen there's a lot of there 's a lot of people who live in such a manner that they 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 took they take the Bible and just say, well, that sounds like a good thing to do as if it 's someone saying You know, these are some good suggestions for your life that will help you be a better person. This is about you becoming better in Christ, growing in Christ, and part of being obedient in Christ means helping others grow in Christ too. That means if you and I see within someone, our brothers and sisters in Christ, something we can encourage them on, or maybe God's given us a direct revelation in our lives, and in our telling of that revelation, or how God's working in us, someone else comes to know that they've been searching for that very answer about how God could very will help them, and that scripture, that verse, that that lesson that this individual learned is also going to lead this other one towards maturity. We have to be worried about those around us. So we have to also look at obedience, but we have to lead others. Secondly, the Christian has a resource for obedience. Let's look at verse 13 as it talks about that resource. Verse 13, it says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. And so there's 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 the word of God that has a measure in there. There's 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 a, a sense of his works in us, but what is it ultimately for? His good purpose. It's ultimately for His will in our lives. And I know you and I, we might not ever just come up and say that we're about our own business, but we are to be about our Father's business. The God who bestowed on us or offered us salvation through His Son also offers us a way that we ought to live. And so in this, the Word of God, firstly, the Word of God is a resource for us in the christian's life in looking at this it kind of looks like this that the word of god is a conductor for god's power god's word is the power line for god's power in our lives god's word you have to know god's word and the over and overarching thing that i hear over and again i don't understand a lot of what i read in the bible well let me tell you this i don't either I don't understand everything I need to know. That's what lets me know that I'm still growing. That's what lets me know that, that I need to, to continue to work with fear and trembling, that I need to continue to allow him to fulfill his good purpose in me and to do what his will is in my life. And part of that means that I, I genuinely seek after him and put his word at the most paramount point in my life. See, if God's Word is not important to you, then do you think it's going to be important to your children or grandchildren? If God, Man, if God's Word is not important to you, do you think it's going to be important in your marriage? Mm -mm. If it's not important to you and I, our kids notice that, our grandkids notice that, our spouse notices that. There's not anybody in our life that doesn't notice if the Word of God is important to us. But when it's not important to us, they take notice. When we say we believe in Christ, that yet they've never seen us crack open God's word or pull up the app or, or whatever else. They've never seen that in our life. They've never seen the word of God manifest itself in us. You might say, well, how? How? How were the people of God's time during this passage in Philippians, how was this any different than us? In these measures, the Word of God, they respected God's Word. There was a reverence for God's Word. There was an understanding and a deeper seeking for God's Word. There was something to be said that because they respected God's Word, that they expected God's Word to speak. They came with expectation. And it wasn't an entitlement expectation. It was a I'm seeking after God and I know based on my ancestors, based on what the people of God, the teachers of God say that if I come to God, he will speak and his word will echo the promises of God. And so they're coming to him. They respected his word and they they looked at his word and they they held it in high regard. If you were to estimate in your life, do you hold God's Word in such high regard? Is it the most authoritative book in your life? Does the Word of God speak in you or speak to you? So they respected God's Word. They received God's Word. They received God's Word. Y'all, we can read the Bible. And there's a lot of people that can read the Bible, but unless you receive what it has to say, then you're just reading words on a page. You've got to know what they mean, what they meant for the people during that time, but what they mean for you and I. How that fits into our lives. The fact of the matter is that we have to receive it into our lives by reading it. Then thirdly, as you think about the Word of God as the Christian's resource, thirdly, they responded. So they, they respected God's Word, they received God's Word, then they responded enough to God's Word. They responded to God's Word. They believed it enough that they were willing to change They not only said, God, your word is held high in high regard. They not only said, your word is respected. God, speak. But now that you've spoken, now I'm going to do something. I'm going to respond to it. I'm going to believe enough to be willing to change what you are working in me for your good. I'm going to be willing to, to do the things with fear and trembling that you're calling me to do. I'm going to be willing to act out or, or follow through with what you have left in my life. The power of God was something that the people of God fully grasped and wanted to know and understand in that passage. Also, the second thing, the word of God in that, in that Christian resource, the word of God, but there was also prayer. They believed prayer was another conductor for God's power. Prayer was something that, was, that kept them connected to God. And it was a link, prayer and working of God's power in their lives. There was very much a pattern of that. There was the prayer and then the working of God. If you've got your copy of God's word, let's, let's flip back to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. And we'll start in verse 26. Romans, keep your finger in Philippians. Romans chapter eight. Verses 26 and 27. It talks directly about this prayer here. Verse 26 and 27 of chapter 8 of Romans. It says, In the same way, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance to the will of God. How many of us go to God and we don't have the words to say? In fact, the Bible says, let our words be few. When we go to God, there's oftentimes like, what do I say, God? How do I even put this into words, what I'm feeling in my life, what I'm going through in my heart, what I'm suffering through in my life? How do I put this into words? I think it's the act of coming to God and just crying before him sometimes. to him when the words are insufficient and more than anything is just residing in him and realizing <laughs> realizing that he is there and part of prayer is remaining connected to him and god's power working in our lives so the two conductors were the word of god and prayer So thirdly, not only the Christian's resource for obedience, but thirdly, as we look in verses 14 and following of Philippians chapter 2, we see the Christian's reason for obedience. So let's look at this. Somebody says, but why? Anybody ever ask why? If you've had children, grandchildren around in the last few years, that three-letter word is taught at schools, I think. I, I don't know how. I don't know who tells them that, but it's automatically downloaded when they get to a certain point. They say, why? Why? So here's your moment of why. So let's look at verse uh, chapter 2, verses 14, and we'll go to the first half of verse 16. It says this, and I know that I'm getting a step on some people's feet tonight. I'm sorry about this already. I'm going to disclaim this. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. See, I've already messed up. Let me read that one more time. Do everything, i didn't say some things, without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of God in your life. So what is the Christian's reason for obedience? And how does that happen? The reason for obedience and how that happens is without grumbling. Because grumbling means ingratitude. Grumbling means ingratitude because you're not thinking about what God has already done and what He's already doing. Now we think about grumbling, and and it's, it's a grumbling in the sense of... The way we talk about the things is if God is not present, or God is not at work. It's not the fact of, I stub my toe, uh uh-oh, you know, that's not what I mean, grumbling. I mean continuously just reveling in it, just going over and over again, just rolling around in it, just, just, just not moving forward, grumbling, it has an effect on other Christians. So what that passage calls us to do, it says that we are to be pure in the eyes of other people, but no mixture of evil in our life without blemish. We are to live in a manner different than the world around us. The passage says here that we are to be blameless and pure children of God. Children of God. What, how do you become a child of God? How do you become a child of God? How do you become a child of God? You accept Him. How do you accept Christ? I'm not asking a difficult question. You accept Christ when the truth of Scripture becomes real to you. When you understand your depravity and your sinfulness and your inability to find Hope in anything else but Christ. And in that revelation of that moment, you become very much aware that the way you've lived your life, you need to repent, need to turn, and you realize that there's only hope in the name of Jesus and what he did. And in that, in that redemption, in that forgiveness, in that understanding of who Christ is, as we proclaim what we've done, he is willing and, and, and freely forgives us. And we understand a certain measure of this, that you and I were bought with a price, that our sin was paid for. And that because our sin was paid for in such a manner as he did, it was satisfied before God and that it was paid for. That he took what was due to you and I so that you and I might become children of the Most High God. And in that understanding, we are adopted into the family of God. So, so in being part of a children of God, we begin to understand, and this passage draws it out. It's, it's being without fault in a warped and crooked generation, a perverse generation, a generation that seemingly has done everything they could to walk away from God. And has done everything they could to say, this is that, this is that, this is right, this is wrong, when none of that is right. And it is not according to the word of God. And they could care less if the word of God was even important. Doing things in America that we once could. And they think about it like this, and you wonder why we are in such moral decay. And how everything, you, you look at the news almost seemingly with your, your hand over your eyes or kind of just drawn back like this, like I never thought that would happen in my lifetime. I never thought people would act like that or do like that. And when we look at it from this, we live in the same sort of generation that people are in a perverse generation. They've seemingly told others what has once been considered wrong is now okay. That it's based on feelings. That truth is relative and it doesn't matter what you think. You're not neither right nor wrong. God's word clearly states in black and red. And in the red parts you better pay attention to. But in black and in red it speaks to us no matter if you're reading King James or not. God's word speaks to us in a way that is poignant and speaks to the very matter of the, the heart. And it tells us there is right and there is wrong and there is love and there is mercy and there is forgiveness for the most vile offender and the same one jesus died for even died for us he died for them too so there is a truth that is generational that speaks beyond what's going on in the time that we live and you might say well is there a route back there is not necessarily a route back to what we know but there is a route to heaven and that is through jesus christ And even though we live in this generation, we are called to shine among them like stars in the sky as we hold firmly to the word of life, as we hold firmly to that. And so those are the reasons for obedience as if we needed another reason to obey God and to follow him, to pursue him. There's a lot of things in this world we encounter that we have personally, humanly speaking, no answer to. And those are the very things that we need to take to God on our knees, on our face before Him, whatever it takes, and listen for God. And if He does not answer, then stay there. Because it's not that God's not listening, it's that God's waiting for us. He's preparing us, preparing our hearts to hear what He's about to say in our lives. See, I've never found a place in the Bible or a time in my life to where God does not have something to say. Our God does not sit in the back, almost seemingly quiet, just watching things happen he participates in our lives he desires for us to communicate his word and to hold fast to that and so scripture tells us again fourthly the christians reward for obedience it lays that out as well so the reason for obedience we looked at in the past passages but now the reward for obedience let's look at the second half of verse sixteen going through verse eighteen it says this And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. How many of you want to know that your life matters? We all want to say that that my life mattered and the time that I spent. Which, when you're young, when you're when you're young and you're going through school, it seems like life has got like you know 800 years ahead of it. But once you get out of school and you start getting ahead, it kind of seems like life goes fast and fast and we realize that time is is sensitive time is short that it's a blink of an eye that it's a moment in time and we are given opportunity to to know Christ and to live in a manner for a short period of time and bring glory to him in this. It says, I did not run or labor in vain. I did not just go through the motions. I did not just show up for church. I did not just tell people I read the Bible. I lived out God's word that I didn't just think about what God said or what the preacher said. I read it for myself. I dealt with the things that he was calling me to deal with that. I went to God's word and I said, God, whatever you're wanting to teach me, whatever I'm struggling through, the answers are in here. And I'm going to read it until I find it or you reveal it and I will, I will receive it onto to it. Y'all, it's, there's a lot of people who know the Bible but they don't know the God of the Bible. There's a lot of people who know what the Word of God might say academically but they have no means of spiritual understanding and they certainly don't take it and make application in their lives, meaning they don't respond. And what good is our faith if we don't respond to it? Some of you might say that if I were to go into your house, there would be things that you don't use that just sit there, right? And what happens to things you don't use that sit there? They collect dust, and over time, some things become not usable, right? You can't. Use them even if you want to. You don't even remember why you got them in the first place or how you even got it. But you know it's there and it must have been important, right? So you start looking around trying to find what even is this. And you start looking at all those things and what you have and those things you accumulate. Don't let your faith be something that's like that. That just sits around and gathers dust. Or, or your Bible that only gets taken off and dusted off only on special occasions. God's word is meant to be ingested every single day. God and his understanding and how we ought to seek after him should be a daily occurrence as we come on our knees thanking him for the fact that we drew our breath that morning and got out of bed. We very much have more than anything to be thankful for. And so the word of God in this passage in Philippians 2, 12 through 18 tells us that how we ought to live in such a world as we find ourselves in. If we are not, um, If we are not careful, we will look at what the world is doing and let it inform our faith instead of allowing for our God, the God of the Bible, to inform the world around us. We will get things so wrapped up the wrong way that we will get so entirely worried and and we should be worried about our friends and family that don't know Christ, but very much we need to be more worried about the God of the Bible and knowing Him more intimately. When you know Him, you really begin to know who you are. And God's word gives us the power. It gives us the means that we need to be able to be the evidence of him. And see, Paul, in this passage, was willing to take a risk to pour out his life in service of Christ for eternal reward. As we finish out this evening, I want to ask you one question. Are we willing to take that risk? Are we willing to manifest or God, let God manifest him, Himself in our lives in these manners? Are we willing to pursue His Word at all costs? Are we willing to respond to the Word of God? Not just know what it says, but respond to what it says. But are we willing to take the risk? in our lives that God might be glorified in our lives and might be manifested in the lives of those around us even if we get no human gain or we don't get ahead as we think we ought to get but it is of our eternal reward should we take that risk if it cost us everything if you ask that question and you start thinking about it do we really have anything that's ours anyway that God didn't give us You say, well, well, Pastor, I've worked, I went to school, I didn't go to school, I got a job, I don't got a job. I've done all these things and accumulated all this stuff, certainly I did that. If you really did that, then where is your perspective on what God has done in your life? And what God is doing in your life? Where's the perspective of God being at the paramount point in your life, being the most important for your life? are you willing to say that he is worth the risk that God in me and fulfilling his purpose is more important than anything else see I remember when the man of the church growing up would just about every Sunday come down to the front of the church and kneel down and pray I remember when things were going not so good in, in our families growing up, that the man of the church would show up, not just the pastor. I remember when the, the women...